Welcome to Don't You Want Me, a podcast series taking a light-hearted look at the most relatable, intriguing and dysfunctional relationships in film. I'm Rich. I'm Kat. And we're joined this week by, I'm going off script completely here, um, by Paul Abbott, who composed the fantastic music you hear at the start of this episode. Hello, Paul. Uh, hello, everyone. Hello. Lovely to be here. Lovely <laughs> to have you here. this festive time of year. Yes. <laughs> Um, well, we have a handful of festive bonus episodes this year focusing on four tinsel-covered films, uh, one chosen by me, one by Kat, uh, one by the folk at Santa's Workshop, i.e. Twitter, and this gem chosen by Paul. Um, so I'll say that we're talking about the 1934 festive comedy mystery The Fin Man, directed by W.S. Van Dyke and based on the novel of the same name by Dashiell Hammett who apparently took inspiration for the central relationship from his own stop-start love affair with playwright Lillian Hellman. The film's screenplay was written by Albert Hackett and Francis Goodrich, a married couple, and it really shows in the best possible way. In 1934, the film was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture and features one of Hollywood's most sought-after dog divas, Skippy, who also appeared in screwball classics Bringing Up Baby and The Awful Truth. Tonight, we'll be mixing a cocktail for Nick, played by William Powell, and wrapping up a silk-dressing gal for Nora, played by Myrna Loy. Paul, please tell us a little bit about your relationship to this film and why you think the relationship between Nick and Nora is worthy of some merry discussion. Well, I think this film... The, the pairing of William Powell and Myrna Loy and the pairing of the characters, though the creation of the characters, Nick, Nick and Nora Charles, is just absolute genius from the point of view of the actors. Every name you've mentioned so far, really, you know, Dashiell Hammett originating it, the actors, the, the director and how he directed this film, which I'm sure will crop up. Um, I first saw this in... October 2007, as my recorded off the television DVD tells me, and it became an instant sort of hit in our house. It's, it's a, it is a Christmas film, although it was shown in October. It's not Christmassy in a Santa Claus on every street corner, tinsel, everything. It's not themed Christmassy, but it takes place over Christmas. So that's earned it, its place <laughs> in this. Yeah. And But the moment, so 10 minutes into this film, you meet Nick and Nora Charles. Nick is an ex-detective. Um, it's his wife, Nora, and their dog, Asta, played by Skippy. And just right from the off, the moment the two of them get together, you just know you're watching an amazing, astonishing relationship being played out on screen. And it's so convincingly good that you, you just assume that these people must be like husband and wife in, in, in real life or something, which I think millions of viewers did. And they're not. They're just brilliant. But it's it's just so funny. It's so light and bubbly. It's also a very good mystery as well. I mean, Dashiell Hammett's amazing. I'd start. I was watching this about the time I'd started reading a lot more sort of classic crime from that sort of period, sort of hard boiled type stuff. And of course, Dashiell Hammett's the guy who writes The Maltese Falcon and The Glass Key, both of which are made into films as well. And it's just great. It's you just want to be like Nick and Nora. It is, <laughs> which to, that is to say, drunk all the time. <laughs> yeah, I think it says something about the movies made for my generation that this might be the most positive portrayal of marriage I've ever seen in a film, or at least one of them. Which in yeah. itself is 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 kind of extraordinary, isn't it? It is, and I think that was what hit so big because. As, 
I mean, it's not a universal thing, but obviously the way that marriages are usually portrayed in films of the period is that marriage happens at the end of the film and the film is about them, people getting together, the problems that get in their way. Well, here we've got the married couple right at the start and you just get to revel in their relationship together. No one's, no one's been forced into any sort of naff traditional roles. Yeah. It's, they're having fun. It's sort of, there's the, there's the sense that they have a relationship I mean, I know they put them in separate single beds in this, you know, they wouldn't have got away with that. Yeah. Uh, having a double bed on screen probably at this point, even though it's just, just pre-Hayes Code. So Yes, yes. Uh, but you just you can just tell that it's a good relationship and, you know, they've got stuff going on. <laughs> They're having a good time. Yeah, they definitely have. So, so that was the period, wasn't it, where a little bit more was allowed to be shown in film before before the censors came in, right? Yeah, this snuck in like up just before the Hayes Code kicked in, I think, which was yes. in 1934 when that started. It's funny when you mention about the the way that marriage is portrayed, because when you look over the festive episodes that we've done this year and the different movies that we've covered, and they've all got a very different perspective of marriage. When you look at the apartment, um, mm. th- there's an aspect that the marriage is something to be escaped and it's hanging back certainly the, the boss anyway um, you've got Die Hard where there's a, a marriage in trouble and uh, and the marriage is almost secondary to that and then Love Actually which has uh, various marriages in various states and the the less we talk about Alan, Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson the fewer tears there'll be but um, yeah. but I mean the, the, the chemistry between Nick and Nora here it's so fantastically portrayed and and even little things like these kind of micro moments and and I was texting cat while I was watching it and just reminiscing around the the little scrunchy faces they do at each other yeah. just across the room it's just like little things like that where there's a little bit of thought in there and and whether that's improvised or not I don't know but when you look at the trivia on on IMDb about the film and how they've they managed to turn this around so quickly because they were doing sort of takes on the sly and everything was sort of encouraged to be recorded on the first take. And, you know, and this is them being entirely natural and it coming across really, really well. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, it was shot in 16 days, which is a ludicrous thing. You know, you, you shoot bad films in 16 days. Woody Van Dyke, otherwise known as One Take Woody, <laughs> it was like said he was sort of told you can only have Myrna Loy if you get the film done really quickly as sort of as a way to try to not be her have her in the film someone was trying to keep her away from the film and he was like all right well I'll do it then and he did <laughs> and it just turns out that he did it exactly the right approach because that speed of turnaround is sort of reflected in the, the sort of fizz you feel through the the film yes it keeps the spontaneity doesn't it yeah, I think there's quite a lot of improvisation in terms of how they're allowed to play off each other. And by all accounts, it came really naturally to William Powell and Myrna Loy, who'd only been working together at this point. I mean, this is their second film, but only by, I think, a matter of weeks. They were rushed off to make a different film together, then made this. But they're instantly like best friends. And, and what's even lovelier, the thing that really warms your heart, because the first thing you do after watching this film, certainly the first thing I did, is, is look it up somewhere. It was probably in Halliwell's film guide or something like that and yeah. back then. And you find out about these people and then you find out that they stayed best friends for the rest of their lives, you Aww. know, for as long as William Powell was alive. And this film was so popular, they made five sequels and they started loads more of the films together. And they were just, they were genuinely 
best friends. They were never romantically linked, but you totally believe their romantic thing on the screen. Yes, I I, I love that as well. The their professional relationship and their genuine fondness for each other that they had in in real life is is really lovely. The whole thing is is such a success story, isn't it? Because they're their chemistry on screen, but then also the fact that you have a man and woman working together that much and getting on like a house on fire and it not being based on, you know, some affair that they're having is really lovely, as you say. Have you seen the sequels, Paul? I've not. No, it's funny. I've, I've, I've never come across them sort of stumbling across them on the TV and I don't think they're shown that often. And it's really hard to get hold of like DVD and Blu-ray copies of these things, and certainly for UK releases anyway. So yeah, it's such not, a shame. Yeah, I've not seen any of the sequels. There was also a TV series made with other people playing the roles a few years later because they were such popular characters. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would like to see them all. I think there's a bit of diminishing returns, as you can expect with anything that has like five sequels. Yeah, of course. Uh, but the weird thing is, us recording this, of course, Dean Stockwell died this week, oh. an actor who everyone loved from Quantum Leap, etc. Yeah, but he was he was in one of the sequels as like the kid. He played their kid in one of the sequels in the forties. Oh, wow. So amazing! That's an odd coincidence. Yeah, that is a coincidence. It's something that we've uh, we try and talk about on other episodes of the podcast where we talk about the chemistry between them and the fact that in this era of filmmaking where it, people were contracted to studios for in, in many cases the the entirety of the career and you would often have uh, men and women playing opposite each other in, in numerous pictures. And I suppose in this case, this would be certainly the benefit because if they've already got that rapport and, and they certainly managed to avoid the, you know, the, the dreaded friend zone, you know, they actually look like a couple of having fun <laughs> and they're married and they're, they're, they're enjoying life. Um, yeah. And it's something that I wonder if, you know, you don't often get these days in, in the modern time where, you know, it's about perhaps pairing people and, and in many cases the chemistry is less than zero. Um, and maybe it's a lesson that could be learned or certainly if, if we get away from franchise making because the minute you say something has five or six sequels, I'm immediately thinking of Police Academy or something like that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's a very different type of comedy. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Crime caper. Yeah, a lot of weird stuff and certainly the detective skills in this film were far superior but um, I mean, when when we look at you know we've we've talked about the studio system a little bit here, but but watching it now in twenty twenty one, how do you think it's aged in terms of the gender balance and and the way the relationships portrayed? You know, we're talking about a film that's the best part of ninety years old. Yeah, I suppose it is, isn't it? Now, gosh, yeah. Well, I th- I think the strange thing is with it, it feels like quite a modern film. I think. Mm. Um, it's. Uh, I mean, if you look at other pictures of the period, like from the, the mid-30s, some of them look very old. You know, cinema's been around a while. We're getting into the period of the talkies, but some films still feel very throwbacky even then, <laughs> despite, you know, them being the cutting edge of new cinema with voices and things. But this, I think, feels very modern. I think the gender balance is something you can pick up on because it is Nick who gets to do all the putting together... I mean, calling him a hero is a bit of a funny one because he, do, he he's desperately trying to avoid doing anything in this film. He's trying not to be a detective in it. He mainly just wants to get drunk. Yeah. <laughs> and Nora does end up doing a little bit of shuffling around with a tray, offering people drinks now and again. But it's because it's a sort of... I don't, high society is not quite the right word, but it's not... You know, They don't want for anything. They're a rich couple idling their time after they've got married. 
you know, with a huge inheritance from her, from her father, I think is the idea in the film, and they can stay in a posh hotel and order order room service permanently, and just so yeah, I, I don't think the bounce is too bad. Although I suspect if you were to remake it these days, you would bring Nora more into the into the story as a active participant. But then she is the one who chivies him on to get him involved and and yeah, keep him well oiled with scotch all the way. Through. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I hear that in the in the sequels, quite often the pattern is that she quite often um, uncovers quite a vital bit of evidence, and yeah. so you know she she instigates that part of the action in that way. I would also say, in comparison to some of the films that Rich and I have been watching for for this podcast, something that's striking about the gender balance is that she is allowed as many good lines as he is yeah. and she comes back at him you know that she's allowed to make fun of him as he makes fun of her they prod each other in a flirtatious way and that you know to this day isn't that common or at least it's not done that well in that many films where you're just you know you just give you give you give the woman the zingers as well as the man, you know. Yeah, there's a good bit where he, to try and get her out of the way, he, he shoves her in a taxi and sends her off to uh, Grant's tomb, which is a location in New York where the film's set. And when they finally get back, he sort of quips, oh, how do you like Grant's tomb? And she comes back with, oh, it's lovely. I'm having a copy made for you. <laughs> and it's those little sort of, you know, you can just feel a relationship there in that, you know, you yes. know they love each other, but they can... And, Oh, it's 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 an amazing script. I think right at the top of the show mentioning that it was written by a husband and wife team. I think that is clearly really important in this because if it had just been a fella writing it, as probably would have been the case in goodness knows what percentage of pictures at the time, it might not have worked as well. But the fact that it's a husband and wife team writing it, I think that's very important. The couple that wrote this, Albert Hackett and Francis Godrich, wrote Father of the Bride, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. It's a Wonderful Life you know, and things like the Diary of Anne Frank. They're an amazing writing Incredible. partnership. And to be honest, the Dashiell Hammett book, The Thin Man, they lift quite a lot of dialogue from it. They add lots more as well. But, they, you know, the characters are sort of nicely there, sort of in the pages of the book for them to work from. And then they sort of make it all sparkle. And then it goes into the mouths of, of Powell and Loy and it just becomes, you know, every step adds something, which is amazing. It's, oh, um, so I mean, when we talk about on other episodes about killer lines, and normally there's one or two standouts. I mean, you've, you've just mentioned one, Paul, about the, the Grants too, but there's so many in this. And, and in the way that, like you said, that she gets as many as, as he does. And I mean, I'd argue she probably gets more. I mean, yeah. the, the one where, uh, the fi- uh, towards the end, when she says, waiter, will you serve the nuts? I mean, I, I mean serve <laughs> the guests the nuts. You know, it's so clever and it's so subtle, but, you know, she's clearly having the time of her life doing it. Waiter, uh, will you serve the nuts? I mean, will you serve the guests the nuts? It, it just, it's so refreshing because we watch films you know, from, I mean, obviously this is by far the oldest one that we've done, but, you know, in a lot of times the, the female characters are, are written in a secondary way and, and, you know, if they do get a good line, they're often portrayed as these kind of, say, whether it's a battle axe or someone like uh, who moans a lot or someone you try and avoid, but they just look like they're having so much fun. It's funny how just seeing a couple enjoying life Oddly enough, I don't know whether it's to do with the moment and time that we're living in, but there's something about their joie de vivre that 
in itself feels quite quite kind of daring and refreshing mm. doesn't it which is it's strange because it's, it's quite a sort of you know sim- simple theme but you just think wow they're having fun they're just enjoying being alive what a what a lovely thing to do <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of uh, P.G. Woodhouse. So yes. I think what P.G. Woodhouse does in the pages of his books for um, sort of a British society thing, when you read those and you think, oh, this is marvellous. Imagine being in those situations. Imagine being those people of leisure, those stupid young men in the Drones Club, just, you know, <laughs> what, what you're doing today. Oh, probably being told I need to get a job, but I'm going to the club instead. And I'm going to... Yeah. And, I thought that, and then what America does is it has films like this. It has a, a filmic tradition in the same sort of period where you look back at it and, and go, they go, that's amazing. And I think this is one of the, the top ones. Although I will say, I suppose the reason that Nick and Nora seem so amazing in this film particularly is that all the other characters in this are strange and miserable or, or sort of... <laughs> double crossing each other and there is a lot of broken relationships that, that abound in this film yes you have the man cr- crying trying to get hold of his mother don't you on the phone and things oh. i mean when you look at the other real portrayal of marriage in here well there's two i suppose you've got um the, the fin man's daughter getting married at the beginning and and that seems like almost a very traditional what you'd expect a soon-to-be married couple acting like and the way they behave and then the the one further down when there's the, the frying is it a frying pan being thrown mm-hmm. um and then you know there's there's the kind of when you compare that to how sort of say making it sound very heavy now but the way that the kind of domestic abuse is treated now it's kind of you know again he's still treated as a bad guy and his behavior isn't tolerated more of it's because he's clearly in, in of interest to them in their investigation but um the the way that the relationships in handled, like you say, it does appear that having a couple involved in the writing gives it some some gravitas and grounds it in a way that you wouldn't normally expect. Um, certainly in the nineteen thirties, but even now, I think. I mean, you don't do you get that many films or stories written by couples like actually together at the time? I can't think of many. No, I don't know. It'd be interesting to know what in the history of cinema how often that's happened, and then if it was written by couples who were happy together. <laughs> yeah, <that's okay. laughs> yeah. I mean, you had uh, Henry and Phoebe Ephron, who were Nora Ephron's parents, who were a married couple who wrote um, screenplays. They, I think, their most famous one was the screenplay for Carousel. Uh, so, and you have, um, I mean, this isn't a screen a screenwriter, but. Uh, when Rich and I were, were talking about the artwork for this for this podcast, we were um, talking about the work of Sol Bass, and he worked with his um, wife as well. You know that you it quite. I think it ha- basically. I think it happens more often than we're told. Yeah, <laughs> quite um, often, you have to go and kind of read, and you think, oh, actually, they were they were um, work, working with their spouses, but quite often the, the men get put to centre stage. You know. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And and writers, particularly in a certain period of Hollywood, sort of took more money and less credit. So you don't necessarily see names on screen in quite such a, you know, in big letters. Oh, Leo. Yes. Uh, first, first yes, sir. Two cocktails. Pretty girl. Yeah, she's a very nice type. You got types? Only you, darling. Lanky brunettes with wicked jaws. When you look at the holding of the cards is something that we've talked about in, in previous episodes. And, and, and it's difficult here because both couples kind of, 
oh, sorry, the the main couple here, Nick and Nora, they they have a kind of joint goal, but they're having fun along the way. But do do you think that one of them has a particular power over the other, or do you think in they're actually you know very much a joint unit or a team? Well, I suppose if you drill down into it, then Nick's a slightly older man, and he's married Nora, who is a younger, more wealthy person. So there is a line about if I was dead, you know, you you wouldn't be not married for long. And he makes a quip and she's like, you better wouldn't. And he's like, yeah, you're rich. And it's another jokey, <laughs> jokey line between them. So perhaps the power balance is more sort of it's finely tipped than it might seem when you actually start to look at it really here. She's got the sort of heart and compassion and she's that's why she wants him to sort of follow up because his family friends are worried about this this case. And he's the one with the sort of background in the you know sleuthing she's unbelievably glamorous so oh, amazing that, that's so. something <laughs> yeah there's some amazing frocks in this film yeah there there really are she wears a, a candy cane dress at the christmas party when she's serving cocktails and i'm particularly keen on she looks she looks incredible and um I mean, they both do. I, I was I was wondering when I was watching it whether maybe that's something that we've lost slightly. Maybe we, we'd all be a little happier in our relationships if we all made a bit more of an effort. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, even um, when, was it Christmas Eve into Christmas morning when they've had the intruder and they're wearing their sort of finest pyjamas, you know, that, that's <laughs> nightwear that's real glamour. There, there's some real voguing going on just in... <laughs> The, the way they're dressed for bed. I mean, this isn't shorts and an old baggy old T-shirt. You know, this isn't when Harry met Sally and they're going to bed in their comfiest gear, albeit slightly different scenario. But it's almost like going to bed is an occasion and they need to yes. look their finest just in case. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, ev- almost everyone in this looks amazing, even the characters who are sort of down at heel, relatively speaking. But there's a bit where uh, one of the victims in this film is a character called Julia, and you only see her very briefly, Julia Wolf, and but she's in this amazing, like sort of tight to the body black gown, and it's like nothing you've ever seen before. Yeah, it's she's amazing. got this platinum, platinum blonde hair, and it's, it's just it's like stunning. It's, <laughs> it's, it's stunning, but it also does a massive bit, bit of character detail work because of the sort of the colours choice and makes her stand out as something a bit mysterious and different um, before she's bumped off in the next sequence or something like that. Yes. But, but almost everyone looks amazing in this. And the guy who plays the um, the, the main policeman in it, uh, Lieutenant Guild, he's got he, his clothes. Yeah, he looks like a policeman in a suit, except he actually looks like a real-life Dick Tracy. He's got such a chiseled jawline. It's amazing. It's just such an amazing cast. Yes. And I, I, I think that... Um... That plays into something else about the film, which is that it feels as if it's a few different genres at once. Yeah. So that thing of you having all of these lines like, what's that man doing in my drawers? And that they feel like they could be, you know, used in in maybe later on down the line in a carry-on film or something. But then <laughs> I believe that got them into trouble that way. Really... because <laughs> um, you know, as I say, like the Hayes Code came in and there were some quite conservative places where they showed the film. So that line and the line where, uh, where uh, Nora says, I read where you were shot five times in the tabloids and Nick says, that's not true. He didn't come anywhere near my tabloids. <laughs> I believe those two lines, that, uh, that and the line about the drawers were ones that got them into trouble. Yeah, and there's also, ever heard of the Sullivan Act? It's okay, we're married. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, so you have you have those those lines, and but then as we've been talking about, everyone looks 
incredible and untouchably cool and glamorous. And then on the other hand, it feels like this this screwball festive film and then also a detective movie. Yeah, it's something that the book doesn't do because Dashiell Hammer is quite hard-boiled, although it is, like I say, the, the relationship between Nick and Nora is pretty intact in the book. And Dashiell Hammer, as an author originating this story, it was not the jolliest of men by all accounts, but he had a background in the Pinkerton Detective Agency, but he was very ill and he had these broken marriages and these affairs, like we say, and stuff right. like that. Yeah. But um, by the time it gets through to the film, you know, as a film, they've just done the right things to it to make it, you know, a little something for everybody type thing. And it, it's, it's one of those things that, including the dog, and the dog's in the book, but including the dog gives makes it a sort of kiddie appeal as well. You've got a, a celebrity dog up there doing some funny business as well, so you can capture all sorts of audiences. It's like when you almost expect the dog to get equal billing at the top, and when you hear, like remember, see films like was it The Artist, where the dog was sort of one of the, the stars of the picture and, and you look back yeah. at Skippy or, or Astor in this case and, and you kind of think that he w- was integral to the solving of the crime and the relationship where the dog fits as almost like a surrogate child, you know, it it's gets that much treatment between, he's not just a pet that goes in the background and I actually put the relationship as uh, giving it an honourable mention um, the way that the dog integrates, you know, when when they're when everyone's singing the Christmas songs, it starts covering its ears, and and as we, um, you know, at the end of the film when it covers its eyes, you know, it's it's an incredibly well well trained hound, but it's um it's 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 nice to see, you know, myself as a as a dog lover, it's nice that dogs get all the you know as many good scenes in here, if not the good lines. Yeah, and apparently. It wasn't just um, William Powell that uh, that Myrna Loy got asked about for the rest of her life. You know, the people would say, "What about Asta? What about the dog?" You know, they, <laughs> the whole relationship, the three of them together, was was you know very well loved. Yeah, I went to a screening of The Awful Truth, you know, with Irene Dunn and Carrie Grant in it a couple of years ago, and I can remember during the screening, Carrie Grant does a bit of business with a piano and a dog, I think, and and I can remember finding it incredibly funny and quite self-conscious sort of like having hysterics or something and um when I was watching this I thought that dog that dog looks familiar I've 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 enjoyed this dog before and it turned out to be the same dog so I felt quite pleased with myself superstar Um, dog yes superstar dog and um maybe a little bit of inspiration for Eddie and Frasier I think he has a kind of similar quality yeah, I can't see how it wouldn't be. I, f- yeah. I feel like it's too, yeah, it's too influential, you know. In- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we've talked about other films that we've done that, that kind of have an influence beyond the obvious. And I guess this one, you know, it, it's had that longer time to breathe. And I think the oldest film we'd done prior to this was The Apartment, which was 1960. Um, so having an extra 26 years on it, having uh, this is the kind of gold standard for dogs in film. It's, um, <laughs> I suppose, you know, this, this and I think, uh, Toto. Was Wiz of Oz before this? Or after? I can't remember. But, um, yeah, I suppose it's a, a golden age for dogging. But, um, yeah, it's, I mean, oops, sorry, slip of the tongue there. <laughs> yeah, you know, something else that we've noticed in, in other films around the, the motivations of the characters. Now, you know, we've already talked about how, whether it's apparent or not, but there's certainly an ongoing theme that Nick has married Nora for her money or at least her her money is a 
it's one of these things that if it was in a film now it would be almost like a bone of contention you know mm. and, and I mean here it's played with a lot more humour but now it would almost be something oh you only married me for your money and it, there might be a little bit of poison behind it but the humour there it doesn't dwell that much and I think it allows allows that the humour and, and the relationship between them to flourish and it's just almost like a I'll say meet cute because we say that a lot but it's almost like a oh it's a funny anecdote you know I'm rich he's not uh, yeah, it just allows them to be in that world that you can remove a lot of boring stuff, like the things that we have to deal with day to day, like getting up and going to work that would get in the way. You you put the money into there, you give them the relationship, that, you know, the ability to be in, in the bars and clubs and posh apartments and all that sort of stuff. You know, they can go to places and Nora can order an extra five martinis to try and catch up, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. I mean, it's not something, it, it, it gets put in different contexts these days, but it's not something that's completely out of culture now. I mean, when you're watching Curb Your Enthusiasm, the scrapes that Larry gets into are kind of about the fact that he's got, a, you know, he's playing himself. He's He's got a lot of money in the bank and he, you know, will will have a, will make a social faux pas at the, at the golf club. So even though that's a very different setting, I think we still have, you know the context now sometimes some of the more escapist comedies we watch are based on people living that kind of lifestyle Mm, yeah Yeah. it's funny because sometimes you you can watch things like that and you think well this is so unlike my life i don't understand it and i don't like it but then you get sometimes like i say with things like woodhouse and things like this it's like this is well this is so unlike my life what a dream it would be to experience certain aspects of of that you know it's it's far enough away that it's uh it can be dreamy and appealing. Yeah, and also I think that part of what makes their relationship uh, so compelling is that it doesn't feel, even though they're living that kind of lifestyle, it doesn't feel sugar-coated because they're, they are having those little sort of barbed comments at each other. They see, They both seem aware of one another's foibles rather than it them just being a couple that you know are living in wedded bliss i mean you can imagine those two having an argument can't you yeah yeah i think so i think that's and yeah if you read in the book as well you can read it in i mean obviously i read the book after i'd seen the film and so i'd read it in the sort of language of the film rather than if you're reading the book you can read it in a slightly different way it doesn't necessarily come across quite so smart and, and friendly um yeah, I don't think it would. I think it's realistic. I think that's the key thing about this in terms of what they've done is they've put on screen modern marriage in a sort of realistic way. Yeah, uh, it's and I think that's why it stays so interesting and fresh to watch. It's it's got that stuff. Yeah, oh, it's great. <laughs> I just I just froth over this. It's just a great film. See, so, so this is your like you probably haven't heard me frothing over Die Hard yet, but uh, I don't think either of us. <laughs> With froth over love, actually, but uh, that's a whole different kettle of fish, wasn't it? <laughs> well, that's the strange thing when you compare it to something like Love Actually, uh, with the balance between them. It's it's so it's so refreshing because, as I say, she she her the dialogue is so wonderful on her side as well as his, and you think, oh yeah, if you if if I you know if I got married and and it had even an element of what they have then it would be a really lovely thing to do. So and I think it's I think it sells me the idea of marriage more than something like love actually does. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's I mean there's obviously there's strange things happening. At some point he has to knock her out. He punches her to get her out the way of a bullet, you know, to yes. um, 
and they do mime sort of striking each other, which is a joke. But yeah, sort yeah. of you, you do sort of go, oh, he's, he's joking about raising his fist, which is a you know a bit strange. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, so, I mean, like I say though, you know, if you want other types of relationships, the film is full of them. So you can, yes. there's plenty of, there's people who are divorced. There are people, you know, there are young people about to get married. There are strange young men with Oedipus complexes. And yeah. so there's, there's plenty of other, other stuff in there as well. It isn't just Nick and Nora, but uh, like I say, from the moment they come on screen, you're just waiting for them. Every time they're not on screen, you're waiting for them to come back on. So you can see what happens next with them and how they act together. Yeah, they've got so much charisma. Yeah, and it's not just the martinis talking either. Stop worrying about your father. He'll turn up all right. Yes, but Tommy, today's Christmas Eve. He's just forgotten. You know how he forgets everything. No, he never forgets a promise to me. I'm worried, Tommy. I know something's happened to him. What could happen to him, darling? Now, will you stop worrying? The important thing is the rhythm. Always have rhythm and you're shaking. Now, in Manhattan, you shake to Foxtrot. A Bronx, to uh, two-step time. The dry martini, you always shake to waltz time. <laughs> There's so much booze in this film. Oh, no, it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't you couldn't match this film. It's quite a short film as well, which is, you know, always an advantage was this sort of thing because they can go on too long and they they deliberately make the story a bit easier to understand than it is in the book in terms of the actual crime that's being investigated and what's happened yeah but yeah you couldn't you couldn't drink along with this film because you would be hospitalized <laughs> halfway through i think you know this is a nick charles is woke wakes up in the middle of the night and has a scotch you yeah. know at his bed it's yeah. <laughs> 1934 i think prohibition in the usa would have just finished so maybe they were making up for lost time. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely sort of in the air, isn't it? It's it's got that um, that that sense of like, uh, well, we're free of prohibition. We you know we we we're not in a war anymore. We're in that sort of interwar period, and uh, yeah, let's let's live it up. Definitely. Yeah, a lot of partying going on. It's uh, yeah, not, yeah, they're making it seem like a very nice place to be. Yeah, although the Christmas party that they do actually have is full of terrible people uh, <laughs> who are all absolutely sloshed to, you know, uh, singing and, and and crying and trying to make long-distance phone calls at their expense yes. and, and all that sort of stuff and sort of ogling the girls who come in. and They haven't been to one of my work Christmas dues then. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's like called Nick's... The only friends Nick Charles has are like previous um, people he's put away or turning up to his party because that's who he knows. That's what yes. his life has been. His career has been meeting criminals, getting them arrested, and then sort of no hard feelings, come to a party later. Yes, one of them says something to him, doesn't it? Like, you know, your wife is great. And he says, yes, I wanted you to see her. I wanted her to see you as well, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I'd have led, if you'd have led with your right, you would have, yeah, I, I wouldn't have been caught, something like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But those those gatherings in the film, even the dinner at the end, so that that's all that all feels quite festive too, doesn't it? In in its own way. <laughs> yeah, that it's got a classic um, detective story ending in that he gets all the suspects together around a table. You know, it's like the drawing room scene in an, in an Agatha Christie, 
Uh, what I like about that is apparently when they were filming it, because it's he arranges to have a really posh dinner, he brings all these people in and he starts feeding them and sort of doing this big spiel about what's happened, how he's worked it out. Yeah. And then you get all these lovely little asides from Nora as Nick's sort of essentially making it up as he goes along, trying to work it out. But they, they while they were filming it, they, they get served oysters. And because it was such a big, complex speech... William Powell had to sort of keep stopping and starting and they just kept putting the same plates of oysters down under the studio lights Oh no! until like nobody in that room could ever look at an oyster again (laughs) by the time it took to do it, you know, it's just, yeah, adds an interesting sort of, um, you can almost detect the aroma in that scene once you know that. Oh wow. People will be confessing to anything under that. Yes. Yeah. I love the line in that where he says, nice food, isn't it? And she says, yes, it's the best dinner I've ever listened to. (laughs) (laughs) Just another zinger, really, wasn't it? Another zinger. There are so many of them. It's brilliant. Do you think that there's something that's been kind of lost since films? Well, why is it do we think that married life is treated so differently, even in comedy comedies these days it's i think we've had a long 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 tradition of, of of marriage being seen as a bad thing and this film you know in its main portrayal of marriage doesn't say that and yeah. it's, it's just left to be you know people but it's a very very long 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 tradition of marriage being seen as the end of something the ends of freedoms and so you you can wring comedy out of that you know it's like mother-in-law jokes and all that sort of stuff and the wife and the mother-in-law and all this sort of stuff and yes and that still persists i think people go to look to get the comedy out of a out of a marriage for being a marriage rather than the comedy that can can, can be in a marriage or in a relationship exactly you know because yeah. of the relationship being what it is rather than the notion of it simply being a relationship like oh you've shackled me we've got to make fun of this in order to cope it's yes uh, yeah yeah it's a you know it's not yeah i don't think we've gone that much further away than anything that would be made as a joke in the 70s or 80s particularly yeah you know we're all a bit more enlightened but it's yeah it's very often it's the situation that's being used as a source of the jokes rather than the actual relationship. Yes, completely. And and um, it, it, the film finishes with marital sex, and I was thinking, God, I can't, I can't really, off the top of my head, I can't think of other films that I've seen that do that. And 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 um, how interesting it is that that's so rare, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that definitely wouldn't have got past if it had been made a couple of months later, and the Hayes Code had come in. They would have. Uh... Definitely not had it finished like that. <laughs> I mean, that just makes it sound like if anyone's not watched it, that it, you just get full-on pornography at that point. <laughs> I mean, you don't. You just get an upset dog. It's, um, That's bad enough. Well, yeah, I know. Yeah, Rich it didn't like that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's enough there that it is, you know, for the time you can imagine it being a bit like, oh, that's quite, you know, it's not titillating, but it's like you know what's going on there and they know what they're doing. Yeah. It's not like the train going in the tunnel in uh, North by Northwest <laughs> or, or whatever. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the naked gun there. Well, yeah. Well, that's the uh, that's the ultimate, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Why are they on honeymoon with them? Is that... Yeah, Is that it's, so the the young couple they they end it up um, the the young couple uh, Dorothy Wynant and Tommy go away with Nick and Nora from New York at the end of it, and they're both traveling on the same. Tr- 
train out of out oh of i see okay and yeah. so that's that's it they they're getting them away from all that you don't get that on a replacement bus service do you <laughs> <laughs> no, no don't see that very often not well I don't know that, Pre- that Preston to Carlisle rail replacement bus service. It'd be like the toilets in one of those sort of cross country services where you press the button and the door opens like a game show. Uh, not a hip and a carload. <laughs> well, here's to you two, and to you two too. Why the rat? He can't top us. No, do they're one of the most convincing couples that we've talked about during this uh, past series that we've done, aren't they, Rich? Yeah, I mean, when when and obviously we we're not just looking at romantic relationships, but when uh, the ones where they are romantic and and there is you know there aren't many happy endings either, are there? When you <laughs> when you no, think about the, the ones no. that we've done, um, people end up dead or. Um, whatever, or, or the, the ending seems very forced, but in this one, yeah, they, they seem genuinely happy, and and you know, knowing now that they've gone on to make a, a number of sequels, kind of makes you feel a little bit better. But you know, throughout, you didn't feel like the relationship was in any peril because she wanted it didn't need to be. But um, yeah, it was nice to nice to sort of get a happy ending where everyone gets along, and you know, it's all very all very nice, and 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 it feels. I don't mean feeling genuine, but you do feel warmth towards them and you feel like you've enjoyed. And that that is by far the highlight of the film because otherwise it's an amusing detective thriller with a bit of comedy, but this is what makes it outstanding. It definitely yes. is. And, and I think it is, like I mentioned before, it's the fact that they, as actual actors, as, as people, liked each other instantly, had a, as a, a friendship rapport that, um, as a bit in... Myrna Loy's autobiography where she sort of says we became very close friends but contrary to popular belief we were never really married or even close to it there were times when he had a crush on me and I had a crush on him but we never made anything of it we worked around it we stayed pals and she says in this world today and I think she wrote this in the 80s nobody seems to understand how you can just be terribly close and love somebody a whole lot and not sleep with him if Bill and I had been lovers then we would have had fights and if we'd have been married it would have been even worse so (laughs) But they were friends, yeah. and there is you can find as somewhere on the internet if you look for it. There's a photo of like their their last meeting together, and they're you know both very old, and they're still best best mates. It's just so lovely. That's really really great, and it's so um it's so good that uh, Van Dyke recognised that chemistry between them, and you know really knew how to harness it in films yeah. like this as well because I think that that can be some sometimes something that um yeah lesser directors they they might not have um recognized it or they might have focused on other aspects of the film whereas the fact that he trusted them so much he just gave them you know all of these just single takes to do and and, and knew that they had something special between them I think that's really beautiful as well yeah and uh, what's great of course is that apparently in 2011 there was a, a remake was proposed of this that got shelved, and the only person that was going to be that had been announced as being cast, they were going to cast Johnny Depp as Nick Charles. Oh, no, no. <laughs> and luckily, that just got shelved by Warner Brothers. They just got it's like they announced it. They only announced him. They didn't announce anyone to be Nora. But it's like thank heavens that that, that did not go any further. Yeah. 
Yeah. I suppose when you look at that that era, you might think it would have been something that maybe Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell might have explored as a kind of in the overboard world. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it is lightning in a bottle to get that sort of relationship and for it to come across that well on, on screen. And so, yeah, it, you'd have to be super, super clever to, to replicate such a good pairing. Yes, it as, a, as, a, as a, the way it's done, it makes quite a lot of films since look very ma- mannered, doesn't it? It's, I was thinking, actually, there's something about their breezy delivery of the lines to each other that feel feels... Um, yeah, quite, quite like the kind of thing people would like to emulate. But they, they, I don't know what it is. Maybe they do too many takes, or, or the dialogue might not be as naturalistic and as good. Yeah, um, it's quite a hard thing to to pull off. It's nice from the films for that period as well. There's a lot of um, what they, I think it was in was it in um, Family Guy once. There was a parody of sort of films of the period, fast talking high trousers. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> And this this is this isn't fast talking high trousers. It's something else. It's 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 a lot funnier and more understandable and uh, relatable. I think. Oh, definitely, definitely. In the honour tradition of Christmas, shall we uh, wrap this one up? Is there anything you'd like to to tell the listeners about where where we can find you? And uh, you know, there, there might be some relationships there between you know band members and so on. Well, you know. Yeah. Um, if anyone wants to look me up, I mean, my personal Twitter is at Pavlovich, but what I would like to talk about is the fact that I do a podcast with my brother called The Big Beatles Sort Out, which is in its, as this will be going out, will be in its second series where we have, my brother is organizing his favorite sort of lists of Beatles things, and I am giving him facts and telling him off mainly um, because it's a strange notion. But if you look for at big underscore sort on Twitter and or just look for the Big Beatles sort out, we've, uh, you know, it's there to, it's all about the love we share for this this particular music and these people that made it. And yeah, also when this comes out, of course, yes, on the subject of relationships, the new Peter Jackson three-part Get Back film will be out. So we'll know, we'll have seen a lot more of the Beatles relationships on, on film, certainly by this point. Mm, that's exciting. Yeah, maybe one day, series whenever we'll have to go back and explore that. Although we'll need a, if it's was it six hours, that's a, we might have to six watch a condensed for the get, version. For Peter yeah. Jackson's get back. Oh, can't wait. Blimey. <laughs> As we skipped over to the door and struggle into our sleeper cabin beds, we wish you a tipsy Christmas and a new year full of brunettes with wicked jaws. I've been Rich. I've been Kat. And I've been Paul. And this has been Don't You Want Me. Thank you.